Hey, good morning, fellowship. Uh, blessings on you, and thank you for those of you also who are, who are uh, joining us online at our live stream. Thank you for stopping by and being part of our worship experience. Hey, as we just saw in that amazing video that th- this weekend indeed is a Memorial Day weekend, and this is a time in which we, we honor those who paid the ultimate price so that we might be free and enjoy the freedoms that we have right now. And let's, let's not take that for granted. In fact, I want to encourage us sometime today to pull aside and maybe pause with our families or our friends or even if we're by ourselves to bow our heads and say, thank you, Lord God, for those who laid their lives down so that we could worship freely. We can be in a country where we can exercise these liberties. And uh, we need to thank God for these folks. Also, if you know of anyone who has a loved one that gave their lives in the armed forces for our, our freedoms, why don't you uh, give them a call today or maybe send them a text or an email. Let them know that you're thinking about them and that you're grateful and thankful to God for them and the sacrifice that they have made via their, their loved one. Say also, it's during this time, uh, typically here at Fellowship, that we would be worshiping the Lord in our giving. And, and once again, I've been saying this every week, but I just want to thank each and every one of you who, who continue to give generously and sacrificially to the work here at our church. It's a blessing, and we don't take it for granted, especially during this time. Uh, we're able to sustain the ministry and keep going and keep investing in our ministry partners around the world who are proclaiming the gospel. And uh, it's because of your faithful giving. And we're just thankful and grateful to God for, for you. Say a little shout out today I want to give to our singles who are watching us. And, and I know that sometimes we often talk about families who are viewing online, but you're, you're single and you're there in your home and you're, you're part of this body, you're part of this family as well. And thank you. Thank you for your commitment to the cause of Christ and thank you for being a part of this family. We love and appreciate you. Say if you have a Bible or a tablet or whatever, I want, I want to invite you to go Get that and turn with me to the book of Jonah. It's back in the Old Testament, a short four-chapter book, but with a powerful, powerful message. And we're going to be in Jonah chapter chapter 1, beginning at verse 7 this morning. So go back and get that. Let's pause right now for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for yourself. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for keeping us and sustaining us, Father. And uh, Lord, I pray in the name of your Son that you'll speak clearly to our hearts as we look at this section of Scripture that is a very, very sobering uh, message for us today that, uh, that you expose Jonah's rebellion and you will expose the rebellion of your people. So Father, I pray that you will speak and may we receive what you have to say. Change our lives, Father, make it clear. Lord, this is your word. It is a very voice of God. It's not a collection of of motivational or inspirational sayings. It is the very voice of God. So speak to us. And may we be open to hearing what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Shared with you last week that I've entitled this series on the book of Jonah, God's Severe Mercy. And as you read this book, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, the backdrop of the entire book is the mercy of God, how God continues to pursue people, pursue them, go after them, even those who reject him and rebel against him. Interestingly enough, parentheses, (laughs) Jonah, 
rebelled against God and God continued to pursue him. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And as I pointed out last week, the Assyrians were, oh my goodness, they, 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 were, they were the oppressors of Israel. They were vile. They were violent. They were, it was a terrorist state. And Nineveh is a capital city. And so Jonah, uh, it's the only book and the only prophet in the Old Testament where God commissions a prophet to a Gentile nation. Now, they've spoken to Gentiles before, but mainly their, their, their prophetic utterances was directed toward the people of God. He sends them to, to Nineveh. And Jonah, knowing about Nineveh and where it is and what it represents, flat out tells God, I'm not going. Not only does he tell him he's not going, he goes down to Joppa, gets on a ship. Nineveh was 500 miles northeast of Joppa. Catch where my man goes. He finds a ship going 2,000 miles away from Joppa in the opposite direction to Tarshish. He's rebelling against God. He's running from the presence of the Lord thinking that perhaps the more miles he gets away from where God called him to go, that perhaps his conscience would settle down and, and maybe God would give him a pass. Not so. And so we pointed out there in chapter one last week, or verses one through six, that there are two lessons that's woven into the tapestry of the entire book of Jonah. These two lessons are simple. They're very clear, but boy, are they very powerful and profound and they apply to us. Number one, God himself often will tell us to do things that we don't want to do. And number two, this is a sobering one, God will not be ignored or denied. So Jonah gets into this ship, and so it's as if God says, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to do? You, you think you're going to run from me? You think you're not going to do what I tell you to do? You don't think there's consequences for your open defiance? Really? And so he hurls a storm at the ship. And these sailors, they're crying out to their God, their pagan God. And come to find out, Jonah's asleep down, way down in the bottom of the boat, probably because he doesn't want to associate with these Gentiles. He's running away from them. And he's sleeping, not the sleep of peace, but he's sleeping this, this, this sleep of guilt, hoping that maybe, maybe, maybe if he wakes up, this whole thing will be over. They call him up and they're praying to their God, but Jonah's not praying to his. Now we come to this section here. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, going down through verse 16. This is when it gets very direct. And I've, I've, I've broken this up. Uh, actually, I've just put it under the whole banner of rebellion exposed. So now it's strange. This ship is <laughs> threatened to be broken apart. And these sailors had never seen anything like this in their lives. And here they have this prophet on board. And he's not praying to their God. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. They understand that this is supernatural in its nature. And so they're trying to get a message from all of this. Why? Why are we in the midst of all of this chaos? And so this narrative, beginning at verse, uh, at verse 7, going through verse 16, is broken up into two parts. There's confrontation, number one, and then secondly, there's confession. But before we get to that, I think it's important for me to say a word about rebellion. Rebellion is not simple disobedience. I suppose broadly, if you're disobeying, you're 
maybe rebelling. But rebellion, rebellion is, is angry resistance. That's rebellion. Angry resistance. You can have a child that has disobeyed, but you wouldn't put them in the context of a rebel. Uh, you know, it's several illustrations. It's, it's, rebellion is like the teenager who is openly defiant and, and just angry and resistance and, and won't, won't go by the rules of the household. Or, or, or you, it's the employer, an employee, excuse me, who, who uh, has a problem with authority and doesn't think that, uh, you know, the rules apply to him or to her. And they disregard authority and they're openly insubordinate. That, that, that's rebellion. Or, or, or it's the Christian who's filled with self-righteousness. And they know that God has called them to do something. And yet they openly, defiantly say, no, I'm not doing that. So God puts the spotlight, God puts the spotlight on Jonah's rebellion. Now, I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, this, this, this is such a confliction in our heads. Jonah is the prophet of God, and yet this prophet of God is rebelling against God. How does that work? And nevertheless, that's what he's doing. And he's the cause for all of this chaos. He's the cause of all of this mess because he's out of purpose. He's out of whack. He's out of line. He's not doing what God called him to do. And God is getting his attention. So what do we have here in this text? You know, this first section, as, as we walk through verses um, 7 through 10, we see this movement under this banner of confrontation that Jonah singled out. <laughs> he's interrogated. And then thirdly, he's found guilty. He's singled out, interrogated, and found guilty. So these sailors come to him and they say, okay, look, we need to figure out what's going on. Verse 7 says, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Uh, this ship is rocking and rolling and somewhere along the way they find that maybe some space or some calm or whatever to cast these lots. And so they cast lots. And the lot falls on, guess who? Jonah. 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 You see, when the captain asked Jonah to pray to his God, Jonah is silent. That's up in verse 6. He said, why aren't you praying to your God? And it's only when the lot is cast and the entire ship confronts Jonah do we get a response from this rebellious prophet. This is sad. Here you have a prophet of God. He's not praying to his God. They're praying to their God. He's not saying a word about the condition that he's in and perhaps that he's the cause for this mess. And when they cast a lot, the only time he speaks up and the only time he, he admits something is when he's like a deer caught in the headlights. You know, it made me think of Psalm 139 verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I go from your presence? Listen to me. Listen to me. Sometimes we preach a, a perverted sense of grace. Where we think 
that we can just do whatever we want to do. We can rebel against God. We don't have to do what he says and that we're okay. It's all right. I can just not do what God tells me to do. And I can just have this comfortable disobedience. And maybe God will come and meet me where I am. And it won't be so bad for me. Now, God, God will put the spotlight. He will put the spotlight on our disobedience and our sin. So once it's revealed, and here you have Jonah standing there, I mean, can you imagine? He got the short straw, and he's looking around, and homeboy's saying right now, hey, look, ain't no hiding right now. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. It's all over. So then they begin to interrogate him. They start asking him questions. We find this here in verse 8. Notice what they say. Said the, uh, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is, your, what is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and what, uh, what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, we're going to say a word about the verse 10 here in, uh, in a moment, or verse 9 in a moment here. But they interrogate him and they ask him these questions. Now, I love what Tim Keller has to say about this. He has an interesting insight. He's written a wonderful book entitled The Prodigal Prophet. It's on the book of Jonah. And commenting on verse 8, he says, and I quote, The sailors are not asking these questions simply to let Jonah express himself, as is answer these specific questions. That's the way we would do in modern Western culture. Their urgent goal is to understand the God who has been angered so they can determine what to do. That's the reason for these rapid fire questions. I don't know that they want a specific answer, but they're saying, what, what have you done wrong for us to be in this mess? Who, who are you? Where are you from? What mission are you from? Oh, what, what's going on here? Obviously, you're the cause of this mess. But then notice how how he responds, right? It's very interesting, verse 9. Listen to what Jonah says. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, in this line, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, everything in me takes issue with Jonah making the statement that I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. This is an insight into his hypocrisy. It's also an insight into uh, the fact that the fuel for self-righteousness is is hypocrisy. Now, just think about it. You're in this ship going in the opposite direction of where God called you to go. And you know that you're being disciplined by God. And yet you have the audacity to say that I fear the Lord. Seriously? Seriously? The Old Testament and the New Testament. The indication of authentic worship has to do with surrender and obedience. So he's saying I'm worshiping God. How in the world are you worshiping God and you're being disobedient? You know, by the way, that's a question for us to answer, isn't it? 
You see, we compartmentalize our lives. We, we don't think sometimes that one part of my life relates to the other part of my life. You can't authentically worship God and at the same time coddle self-centeredness and do whatever you want to do. We can't do that. And yet Jonah has, uh, <laughs> has the audacity to say, hey, I'm a Hebrew. We're the true people of God. And I fear the Lord, right? I fear God. Do you really, buddy? Do you really feel him? Again, you can't worship God and, dis- and disobey him. But see, <laughs> Jonah's claim to worship him is so bogus and so startling, which, which really shows that he himself is self-deceived. Well, then thirdly, he is found guilty, singled out, interrogated, and now he's found, he's found guilty. Verse 10 says, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Oh, man, what you're saying doesn't make sense. You, you, you told us that you're fleeing from the presence of the Lord, but now you just tell us that you fear the Lord. What, and we're in this pickle. We're about ready to die. This ship is being blown apart. What, what, is, it that, what is this that you've done? He's found, he's found guilty. Guilty. Again, this is not uh, so much a, a question as it is a statement of horror at Jonah's disobedience. What is this that you've done? They knew what he did. It's just like you say to one of your children or someone close to you who's done something that is so outlandish and crazy and horrible and hurtful. They, you, you, you know what they did, but you say, well, what did you do? That's what these guys are. Man, you know, th- this is not just some little inconvenience that we're going through. We're, we're about to lose our lives because you have decided to disobey God. You've rebelled. So, here you have it, this confrontation, singled out, interrogated, found guilty. But then the second part of this is that there's confession. That's verses 11 through 16. Now, here in verses 11 and 12, Jonah admits his guilt. He admits he's guilty. Then he said to them, to him, uh, uh, they said to him, this, uh, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, listen to what Jonah says. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, this, this statement sounds more magnanimous and, and self-sacrificial than it's intended to be. You must read this statement in, in its broader context. The broader context here, why didn't Jonah just drop to his knees and cry out and say, God, I am sorry? Why didn't he just do that? 
Why didn't he just say to them, hey, look, I'm going to call on to my God and tell him that I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be making a beeline up there to Nineveh. I'm going in the wrong direction. And, and, I, and I like for you guys to turn around. But if I cry out to him in repentance and turn from my sin, he'll do that. But that's not what he does. What he does is, this is a statement of stubborn rebellion. What he says is, just throw me overboard and y'all be safe. Which shows you how deeply entrenched Jonah's resistance was to doing what God wanted him to do. He did not want to go to Nineveh to say anything about a gracious God to those people. Even if it cost his life. Boy, wow, that's incredible. And again, I want to encourage you to read the entire book, lest you think I'm being extravagant here. So this confession is not the voice of repentance. This is not one crying out that he wants to change. This, 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 this confession is just admitting that he is guilty and that he'll accept the consequences. It's not repentance. He said, yeah, I'm guilty and I will accept the consequences. Throw me overboard and God will stop it. Well, the sailors conclude that Jonah is indeed the key to quieting the storm. Quieting the storm. So although he takes responsibility for what he does, uh, and I would have to say that there might be a modicum of conscience in Jonah because he doesn't want these fellows to be destroyed. So he says, okay, I'll take the hit. But please, there's no repentance here. I know some commentators and others, and I've heard messages on this that says that the Jonah's repentance began when he was willing to jump overboard. I don't see that. I, I see him acknowledging what he's done, but I don't see that acknowledgement comes until he's forced. I mean, the lot shows that he did it. He's painted in a corner. It is a defiant admission of guilt. And it's astonishing. Jonah was willing to die. And once again, why didn't he just simply repent and choose obedience? Why? Why? Maybe somebody's listening to me right now and you're in that situation. Oh, perhaps in your mind, maybe not as dramatic as this situation is with Jonah, admittedly. But you have been resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting. And you know what's happening? Other people are paying for your resistance. God has hurled a storm at you and those associated with you. And yet the pride has, has grabbed you by the heart. And that self-righteousness has morphed into this kind of crazy, stubborn resistance. That just stands there and says, no, I'll, I don't care. I'm going to do what I need to do no matter what. Are you there? Are you there? And, you know, and the point is this. 
Jonah is even asking God by his behavior not to show him mercy. Isn't that interesting? By his very posture, by by his very resistance, he's actually saying to God, don't show me mercy. But then again, this is this is a this God is so incredible because what happens next here is that basically these sailors ignore him. And instead of chucking him and throwing him overboard and deep sixing Jonah, they exhibit the very grace and mercy that Jonah refuses to extend to the Ninevites. Where do you get that from? Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, He says, throw me overboard. He says, no, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. What's the point here? The sailors want to save his life. They They don't want to lose their lives. They don't want to lose him. The sailors want to save his life. This is amazing. But only after they realize there's no way to be saved do they throw Jonah overboard. Did they throw him overboard? There's a lesson here for us. Listen to me. Don't try to rescue someone that God wants to discipline. It's one of the hardest lessons I've learned in life. Even people that you know and love who are close to you, be very careful of rescuing someone that God wants to discipline. And some of us, we want to bail our friends out. And and I I get it. You know, we ought to be great friends. We ought to love our friends. We ought to do all we possibly can, our, our children and all of that. But, but, but there comes a point in time where God says, no, no, if you keep trying to, to rescue the one that I'm trying to discipline, guess what's going to happen? Both of y'all going to get it. And so they realize, hey, look, God's anger is directed toward Jonah. And if we, we keep protecting him from God, guess what's going to happen? We're all going to be lost. We're all going to be destroyed. And by the way, parenthetically, parents, this is a very, very, very hard but important lesson. You actually, you actually can, can, can launch your children on a trajectory of foolishness and emotional immaturity by rescuing them from the consequences and the strong messages that God wants to give them that often is associated with pain. But Jonah needed to learn this. There is a point, there is a point where mercy morphs into an enablement. And it's not mercy at all. Actually, believe it or not, it's a form of abuse. And so these sailors, they get, they get the message. And they end up surrendering to God's plan. That's found in verse 15, God's plan. Verse 14 says, therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us uh, innocent blood for you, O Lord, have 
done as it pleased you. Verse 15 says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. This is remarkable to me. They surrendered to God's plan. And what happens? As soon as Jonah hit the water, the storm stopped. As soon as they put the person in the hands of God, the focus of God's anger was shifted from them to disciplining that person. And I like to think that the storm stopped immediately. I don't think it was just sort of gradually uh, dissipating and going away. They obeyed God. They put Jonah in God's hand and God took care of, of the problem. God took care of the problem. So they surrendered to him. And by the way, the anger of the storm is an expression of the anger of God toward his rebellious prophet. Now, this might cause some of you all to be a little upset with me by making that observation. You said, how can God be angry at us? Doesn't God love us? Doesn't he care about us? Sure. Anger and love are not polar opposites. They're not polar opposites. God was angry at Jonah's behavior and his way of thinking. And he was saying to Jonah, I will do whatever it takes to pull you back in line. Yes, so God, God, in that sense, can be angry with us. You see, we've got to be careful of, of making God a, a, a caricature of God uh, that reflects our handiwork and uh, our, our little blueprint, our, our little pattern, where we take our favorite attributes of God and our favorite characteristics that really don't demand much of us, and we make a picture and a portrait of that kind of God. Now, God is a just God, and He does display anger. even toward believers who disobey him. So God deals with Jonah. He's thrown overboard. But the last observation I want to make under this whole idea of confession is that what happens to these sailors here? And I've sort of tipped my hand as you read verses uh, 14 and 15. It's pretty remarkable. These sailors are converted how do you get that? Listen to what they say. They called out to the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Before they were praying to their pagan gods. I, I can't prove this, but I have the sneaking suspicion that God used Jonah's answer to their questions to get them moving toward the God of Israel. Not only that, the storm that they were in and the revelation of what was taking place set them up to change their allegiance from their pagan gods to the God of Israel. When Jonah said, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That got their attention. So again, notice their prayer in verse 14. 
O Lord, not their God, Yahweh, Jehovah, O Jehovah, O Lord, the covenant name of the God of Israel, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And then again, look at verse 16. It says, then the men feared who? The Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is, this is astonishing. These, these sailors are converted. They're converted. They acknowledge the presence and power and the greatness of God. And interestingly enough, in verse 16, it tells us that this miraculous deliverance from the storm helped them to catch a glimpse of who God really is. Now, I need to point this out to you. This is not some foxhole conversion. They don't, they don't make the declaration in verse 16 um, prior to the time that the storm ceases. Or as you can say, oh, oh God, I'm in trouble. Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I will follow you. I will abandon my pagan gods and I'll become a follower of Yahweh and, and he'll be my God and the captain of my life if you only get me out of this situation. No, no, no. This was not a foxhole conversion. They got converted after the deliverance. It was amazing. After the danger was over, they got converted. Now, getting toward headed toward home here. It is so ironic. It is so ironic. Drop it in its context. God is sending Jonah to Nineveh to give a message of his truth to the capital city of the hellish Assyrian Empire, terrorist state. Jonah does not want to be a vehicle of God's grace and mercy. And yet, ironically, <laughs> Jonah was running away from God because he didn't want to share God's truth with wicked Gentiles. But that is exactly what he did before they threw him in the water. Before they threw him in the water. This, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Got to say, you, you, you don't get it, buddy. One way or another, through your life, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. Before we pray together, let me give you three lessons coming out of this text. Three very important lessons. Number one is this. God will make sure that even our disobedience will accomplish his purposes. Did you hear what I just said? God will make sure that even our disobedience will accomplish his purposes. I didn't say that he'll bless us. He'll make sure that. So don't, don't say to God that what you're not going to do. God will say to you, okay, I'll use you in spite of myself while I discipline you and spank you. But even our disobedience is going to accomplish the purposes of God. I, I gave you all, all kinds of illustrations, all kinds of illustrations to this. That God will take your no and make it a yes. While you think you're still telling him no. God will take your arrogance, humble you, 
and make you think, okay, oh, fine, this go, I'll just partially do it. And he'll get great glory out of it. So he'll use our disobedience even to accomplish his purposes. The second lesson that we need to learn from all of this is that to acknowledge our sin and even to accept the consequences doesn't mean we've repented. Did you hear what I said? To acknowledge our sin and even to accept the consequences of those sin doesn't necessarily mean that we've repented. You see, repentance is a total change of heart that issues in a total change of behavior that responds to a God without reserve. Jonah didn't do that. He acknowledged his sin, he confessed his sin, and he said, I will accept the consequences, but he never repented. He will repent next week, but he didn't repent this week. And that's a good word for all of us. And not that we need to be hard on people. No, we don't need to be hard. We need to be gracious and loving. And only God knows people's hearts. But don't don't be fooled. Don't be fooled on someone who shakes the yes. I know I did that wrong. I know it's totally wrong that I did. Yeah, I'll take I'll take my medicine for that. Don't call that repentance. That's confession, maybe, but that's not necessarily repentance. Repentance always means change. Change. And the third lesson that we need to learn from all of this is that all all sin is tainted with self-righteousness. Meaning, don't make others suffer because of our disobedience. You know, fellowship family and those of you watching me right there now, this has been one of the great, uh, great motivations of my life. Uh, the thing that God has used me, uh, used to help me from making stupid decisions, doing something that would be really, really bad. Is, is, is the memory, and remember, I've been married now for almost 49 years and I have a wife to trust me. I have four kids who believe in me and has given me the gift of their trust. 11 grandkids, a church body and family. All of this is stewardship responsibility. I don't want to do something that will splatter on them, violate that trust. I don't want to have attitudes in my heart and life that will attract the discipline of the Lord that spills over on all these other vital relationships. But then again, self-righteous people have a tendency not to think about those things. That's the reason why it's called self-righteousness. Let's make sure that we're walking in humble obedience to the Lord. And I have an assignment for you. After, after you click off from here later on today, later on today, why don't you get by yourself? Sit down and ask the Lord, Lord, are there areas in my life in which I'm resisting you? Will you show them to me? And help me to respond to you. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the number one response that you should have is to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sin and I trust you as my Savior and Lord. Holy Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your presence. Thank you for how patient you are with us, how you love us. God, may we enjoy your presence, may we listen to your voice, and may our response to you always, always, always be yes. In Jesus' name, amen.